Remember the power, the magnitude, and the gravitas of your own sin. But never, ever, ever, ever forget the power, the magnitude, and gravitas of the grace of God. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. If you have your Bible with you, can you turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 3, and we're reading and studying together the first six verses. If you're turning it up in the church Bible, available for your use in the pew, you'll find it on page 1916-1916, Revelation chapter 3, we're reading verses 1 to 6. Most of you are aware that over the last few weeks we have been steadily working our way through the book of Revelation, and Jesus is writing through the Apostle John, or Jesus is speaking rather, through the writings of the Apostle John to seven churches in an area known as Asia Minor back then, but today modern Turkey. So if you've ever visited Turkey, you wouldn't be too far away from the churches we've been looking at. And today we come to read about the church in Sardis. Revelation 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation, a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. About three weeks ago on a Saturday afternoon, a little girl who lives across the street, her name is Gray and she is five years old, she came back from the circus with her mum and dad and her baby sister and she could not wait to tell us all about the circus. So she bursts through the door just full of excitement about the clowns and the ringmasters and all the things that she had seen. And eventually we get her settled down. She speaks to her mum on the phone and mum says, yes, if you want to stay for story time, that's fine. And so she did. And so we made some popcorn, some snacks, and she popped up into my lap and we read one of her favorite stories. You've heard me talk about Grey before, and she comes over uh, occasionally after her pajama—excuse me, after her bath at night in her onesie pajamas—and she's a story before I take her back home. And so we were reading her favorite, or one of her favorites, called "Never Say No to a Princess." 
and grandparents and parents as well worth having. It's excellent. And the story basically is that the princess is a little spoiled and ruined and no one ever says no to her. And on the front page, you have a drawing of the princess's bedroom. And of course, there are sparkly tiaras and sparkly dresses and sparkly shoes and the whole room is just an absolute disaster. Toys are everywhere. Clothes are everywhere. And so I say to her, Grey, do you have a sparkly crown when you dress up to be a princess? Oh, yes. I said, and do you have sparkly shoes? Oh, yes, just like them, pink. I said, and do you have a sparkly dress? Oh, yes, I have a sparkly dress. And I said, now, do you help your mom and dad clean up your room? Oh, yes. I said, is your room ever as messy as the princess? Oh, no, it's much worse than that. (laughs) And the reason I enjoy telling that story is this. There is a refreshing honesty about it. Because when you're five years old, you don't know all the subtle nuances of adult conversation, and you just call it as it is. And here in Sardis, as the risen, exalted Christ is writing to the church in Sardis, he calls it as it is. It is not only profoundly challenging, it is also deeply inspirational, refreshing, and honest. And so as we come to the passage this morning, let me read again the opening verse. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, we've seen that language used throughout these uh, chapters one and two to the seven churches, and in essence, it means this. It's a reference to the sevenfold attributes of the Spirit of God that you find in Isaiah chapter 11. And the seven stars are the seven churches, and here is Jesus with the Spirit of God and the church of God, and he is speaking on behalf of the Spirit of God and, of course, the Father and the Son to the seven churches. That's what's happening there in symbolic language. And then he becomes very pointed, and he says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, that's quite a statement, that strong language right to the very beginning of this epistle. The church should be the very opposite of dead and dying and shriveling, imbued by the Spirit of God. We have the Word of God to inspire and encourage and strengthen and enable us. And yet there are dead churches. We have one here in the first century at Sardis. Now, before we go much further, let me suggest this. It's difficult to understand exactly what's going on in a scriptural passage until you understand a little about the cultural, historical context for the city of Sardis. So let me give you a brief overview of the city of Sardis. city of Sardis itself was one of the oldest cities in Asia Minor. It was at the junction of roads for Pergamum and Smyrna and Ephesus. It was a wealthy city known for its its, uh, carpet manufacturing. It had significant deposits of natural rock and also significant deposits of gold. They had a reputation for a large, growing, developing, busy, wealthy city. 
And I suspect the church also had a similar reputation because it was part of the city of Sardis. And here is Jesus writing to them. And notice what he says again. I know your deeds, and you have a reputation for being alive, but spiritually speaking, you are dead. You are dead in the midst of this growing, wealthy city with a great reputation. You are dead. In other words, its core values, the things that defined it as a church, were not doing so well. They were dying, if not already dead. Now, you may be sitting there saying, Richard, I'm with you. I understand all that you're saying, but help me tease out what you mean when you say a dead church. Can you give me four or five things that would allow me to begin to say, okay, I see what you're saying. I grasp it. Describe for me the marks of a dead church. Well, I think the first mark, or one of the marks of a dead church, would be this. That although the church has been impacted by the gospel, although Christ is at work, it has been some time since the people of God responded to the call of God And often when you see, even today, a church that is dying or decaying, often one of the hallmarks of that church is this, that it's living in the past. All of its language, all of its emphasis and ministry imperatives and initiatives are always wrapped up in who they used to be, what they once were like and they're seeking to live back then. Now, you remember last Sunday morning when we looked at the church in Thyatira? There was a similar charge to the church in Thyatira when their memories were more important than their dreams. Do you remember that? Sardis is similar. Any church should be grateful for its past. Any church should be faithful, should be grateful for God's faithfulness and the faithfulness of the folks in the past. It's to be celebrated and honored. But no church can live in the past. One of our primary callings is to listen to the call of God and follow Him to be the people that He is making us rather than focus on where we were. So that's often the first mark of a dying church. Secondly, There's often, and we see it again today, I'm not sure about the church in Sardis, but I wouldn't be surprised, but a church today who's dying and decaying and shriveling is often a church without children and without teenagers. Teenagers will not come and hang around that which is dead. They won't. Children call it for what it is. Gray, is your room ever as untidy as the princess? Oh no, it's much worse than that. Children call it as they see it. Children, teens, a lack of looking forward and focusing on the generation still to come. Thirdly, there's often in a church which is dying and decaying a resistance to change. The theme tends to be we've never done it that way before. 
new proposals, new ministry initiatives, new imperatives are floated for consideration, and before they get off the ground, they're shot down. A mark of a church that is dying and decaying. And it takes us to point number four, and it's this, and you see it time and again, where loyalty within the congregation is to the church and love on behalf of the congregation is for the church rather than loyalty to Christ or love for Christ. Now, there's a sense in which every one of us who worship on a Sunday morning loves our church. We enjoy who we are. We enjoy the institution of the church and all that we are and all that we're able to achieve. So we don't dismiss or denigrate that in any way, but when it's lifted up over and above a love for Christ and a heartfelt, passionate affection for the things of God, it's often a sign that a congregation is dying and shrinking and decaying. Number five, a dead church is often a place where leadership is disengaged and dispassionate about the things of God. Whenever you go to a church and the leadership are pointed and focused in what they teach, are enthused about their faith, are going to deal with the tough issues and the difficult and controversial issues, you know you're in a place which takes the gospel seriously, where a preacher will talk about personal sin and the need for salvation and a growing love for Christ and become passionate about prayer and will focus on social issues of the sanctity of life and the sanctity of marriage and talk about personal repentance. Then you know you have a leadership who are responding to the call of God. But in a dead church, leadership refuses to deal with the moribund impotence of cultural accommodation. There are so many utterly spectacular and wonderful things happen in our society and in our culture. Please don't leave this morning thinking, I'm down in culture every Sunday. I'm not. There are so many good things. But we also know this, that as Christian people, we are called to impact that culture. Our job, our calling is to talk about honesty and integrity and character and to see them happen in where? In law and education and medicine and healthcare and in society general. That's the job of the church. We're called to be salt and light. And when leaders refuse to deal with and live with cultural accommodation, it is often a sign that activities and programs and busyness and reputation has replaced holiness. Let me say it again. It's often a sign where activity and programs and busyness replace holiness. The fifth mark of a dead church. Now, having said all of that, and we did start this morning by saying this passage is not only profoundly challenging, and that's what we've seen so far, it is also wonderfully, spectacularly inspirational and invigorating as well, because the letter changes 
notice what comes next. He says, not only I know your deeds, you have a reputation for being alive, but are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. If, if chapter 3, verse 1 was challenging, verses 2 and 3 are inspirational. And what happens here is this. There are five action words that we're focusing on in the rest of our study this morning. The first is wake up. The second is strengthen. The third is remember. The fourth is obey. And the fifth is repent. That's what makes a church, a church who are fully engaged in the call of God and responding to all He's called them to be. Be a place that is life-giving, life-affirming, a place of engagement with the living God. It's that spiritual, urgent call from Christ Himself. And then He takes it a step further, and He says to them, strengthen what remains. Now that you are awake, begin with the little life you do have exercise, build those muscles, look for fiber, and be determined to become the people you're supposed to be, the people whom God has called, who are healthy and growing and maturing. Wake up and strengthen the life that's there. Now, folks, how do we take that and apply it this morning? Well, perhaps this, that growth and maturity in the Christian life almost never comes as a solo exercise. Almost never comes as a solo exercise. Can you sit at home on a comfortable chair with a cup of iced tea or coffee and read the Scripture and be blessed? Absolutely. Let me encourage you to do exactly that. You cannot continue that way indefinitely. Make it a priority to be here on a Sunday morning, surrounded with other Christians. Get into a Sunday school. Get into a life group, men's Bible study, a ladies' circle group, and learn the Scriptures. Get it into your heart and mind and soul. The very opposite from a dead church, a living, dynamic, growing, maturing church. Wake up and then strengthen what remains. And then in verse 3, he says this, Remember, therefore, what you have received. And if you go away remembering nothing of this morning's message, please remember these words in verse 3. Remember what you have received. And what is Christ reminding them of? He's reminding them of the gospel. He's reminding them of the impact it once had on their lives. He's reminding them of the hope and the love and the grace and the strength of God that transformed them and renewed them and breathed spiritual life into that which was once dead. Remember what you've received. And on this Valentine's Sunday, it seems appropriate to be in this passage because he's saying to them, remember the outrageous, the overwhelming love and the eternal love of God. I'm sure that 
As a child, you may have played that children's game, and girls, I think especially, you would have played that game when you picked up a flower and would pull the petals off of it because someone in grade four, you liked. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. When it comes to the eternal unimaginable, overwhelming, outrageous love of God. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. And it goes on to all eternity. Do you remember what is arguably the greatest passage in all of Scripture that comes from the book of Romans? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us while we were yet sinners, when we wanted nothing to do with him, when we turned our back on him, treated him with contempt, and couldn't care less. At that point, he died for us. Remember the gospel church in Sardis. Remember the gospel, church in Greenville. Get it into your bloodstream. Live it out. Follow him. Remember what you have heard, and then what? Obey it. Obey it. When we spent some months in the book of Romans a year ago, there were two principles I sought to leave you with then, and it's this. It's a realistic understanding of the Christian life, and it begins with this. Remember the power, the magnitude, and the gravitas of your own sin. Remember the power, the magnitude, and the gravitas of your own sin. But never, ever, ever, ever forget the power, the magnitude, and gravitas of the grace of God. How often on a Sunday morning have you gathered for worship and you have been downhearted and discouraged and you are just wondering, why on earth do I bother and then by the end of the service, as we have spent time in the Word of God, He's breathed life into the Scriptures and encouraged us, and we leave strengthened and enabled and ready to serve because we have remembered the power, the magnitude, and the gravitas of His grace. That's what Sardis needed to hear. That's what a dead church today needs to hear. We also need to remember in order to live for Him so that our dreams are more important than our memories. But he's not finished there. Two more words, action words to remind us. He says, therefore... Remember what you have received and heard, and then obey it. James chapter 1, verse 22, there is a spectacular verse. And if you're taking notes this morning, please write down James 1, 22, and follow up in the course of today or this week, where James lays out one of those great biblical principles, and this is what he says. 
Do not merely listen to the Word of God, but do what it says. Do not merely listen, but do what it says. Merely listening is that outward ritual of going through the motions because it's the church kind of thing to do. But James is reminding us that there's a world of a difference between reading a menu and eating a meal. There's a world of a difference between reading a prescription and actually taking the medicine. It's in the application that the difference comes. No obedience, no blessing. It's as simple as that. And please understand me when I talk of obedience, because obedience often sounds stark or mechanical, but we don't obey the Scriptures and live for Christ simply because they say so, although we ought to. We don't do it out of duty. We do it out of delight, and we do it out of delight because we know and love its author. That's the point. That's the point. We know and love its author. Obey. And then finally, repent. If you were with us last week, you will remember my basic understanding of repentance is this, and you see it all across Scripture, that your life is heading in a particular direction, and you stop and pause, and by the enabling grace of God, you about turn and head in another direction, and you do it intentionally, willingly, and delighting to follow Him. That's what's going on here. That's what it means to repent, to move in a different direction entirely. You become intentional about Christ-like lifestyle, maturing and growing and being obedient in your faith. So having said all that, how do we now sum it up this morning? In these six verses, Jesus lays out for the church in Sardis, He creates clarity for them. He then gives to them ministry imperatives. He then gives to them spiritual initiatives, and He presents them a vision of who they could be and they have a choice. And each one of us here this morning, watching on television, listening on the internet, or on the radio, you have a choice. Who will you become? Do you wish to be spiritually alive or dead? Do you wish to intentionally step up, become asleep or awake? Or are you more concerned about your reputation than you are walking with Christ? May God take His Word and seal it to our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this remarkable passage of Scripture. Thank You for Your eternal love ever extended towards us. Thank You for Your call upon our lives. Enable us, please, this morning to leave here determined to walk with You. 
committed to live for you. Father, wake us up, encourage us, strengthen us, and enable us by your grace to live for Christ in these days. And in his name we pray. Amen. First Presbyterian Church will hold its 39th annual Turner Memorial Prayer Breakfast on Thursday, March 3rd. This year's speaker is Cleveland Browns quarterback Connor Shaw, who will speak at 7 a.m. following a full breakfast buffet opening at 6. Tickets are $10 each and are available at the church office. Monday through Friday from 8.30 until 5. Tickets will not be sold at the door. For more information, call Lindsey Graham, 